Well, the ballot papers go out to Conservative members next week, so these debates that are happening now are really very, very important. We had the full BBC debate last night, and I'll tell you what wasn't discussed, even more than talk about what was discussed. But tonight's debate, which was on from six till seven, or supposed to be, sponsored by the Sun newspaper, ended quite dramatically. There were conversations going on, understandably, about tax, about the National Health Service, about the cost of living, and then this happened. He's not going to stop there. He's going to challenge the freedom and democracy. This trust is shock, horror, and then she started to walk forward. Pretty clear to me from the moment it happened that she was going to help somebody. Uh, we didn't quite know what happened, but it appears that the host of the show, Kate McCann, the host of the programme, had collapsed. Uh, we're told from News UK sources that she is OK. But it's a, a pretty dramatic thing to happen in the middle of a big debate. Um, and let's cross over uh, to Tom Harwood, uh, who is over there right now. Tom. Yes, it was an incredibly dramatic moment, Nigel. I have to say here in the spin room, not where the debate is being recorded, but the spin room, a separate location uh, in central London, where the big, heavy-hitting supporters of both teams are here preparing, or were preparing, I should say, to spin that their candidate had done best after the fact. The room went completely <coughs> silent when that happened. People looked very, very shocked. Everyone clearly had a lot of concern concern for what had gone on in that room and it began to become established that the host of the debate, Kate McCann, had fainted. Thankfully, we have established that she is OK now, but a really tense moment there and it does mean that the debate was concluded about half an hour early. It was not then picked up. The candidates then went to speak to the in-studio audience rather than continuing anything on air. And it also means that the heavy hitting MPs here in the spin room tonight to support their candidates in this race will not be speaking to the media, that the spin, the usual post-debate spin will not take place this evening. And everyone here is just wishing that everyone over in the studio is OK. Well, Tom, of course, that absolutely goes without saying. We all wish Kate McCann well, and we're pleased to hear the news sounds good. And it's a rotten, absolutely rotten thing to happen at any time, let alone when you're in the middle of a high-profile debate like that. In, in terms, Tom, of what was discussed, uh, and, you know, whatever's happened tonight, these ballot papers are going out in a few days' time, um, did you have any impression... Was Sunak going more gently tonight after his bull in a china shop approach yesterday? Yes, it really did seem that Rishi Sunak has taken a different tack this evening. Instead of choosing to attack uh, Liz Truss, he uh, instead used his moment to ask uh, Liz Truss a question, to ask her about the fact that it was her birthday today. Clearly a more softly, softly, gently, gently approach from Rishi Sunak today after the polls yesterday suggested that at least amongst Conservative supporters, his more aggressive approach last night didn't seem 
to butter uh, much bread, but also talking to some of the people in and around Rishi Sunak's team here tonight, it seemed like the plan, the game plan for the Rishi Sunak campaign was to let uh, Liz Truss speak more and interrupt less. Uh, that seemed to be how things were going through the first half of this debate. And we did get to some substantial issues there. Rishi Sunak really talking up his support for the NHS, saying he came from a medical family, that he instituted the national insurance tax rise in order to help protect the NHS. Of course, one of the questions came from someone who was suffering from cancer at this time and felt like the NHS hadn't been there for him in the way that it could have been. So a really key uh, differentiation there. Liz Truss, of course, saying that she would find the money, but through general taxation rather than through that tax rise through national insurance that we saw to help the NHS through clearing that backlog crisis. But also a differentiation point where Liz Truss tried to set aside that issue of corporation tax. Instead of describing her corporation tax policy as a corporation tax cut, as it has been described by many in the press, Liz Truss was saying, and she, to be fair, is right on this point, that she is not changing the level of corporation tax. Her proposal is not a cut from the level it is now. It is simply a decision not to raise the level of corporation tax, which Rishi Sunak yeah. is planning yeah. to do next year. Rishi Sunak planning to raise corporation tax from 19 to 25 percent in line with countries like France and about 10 points above countries like Ireland. Liz Truss saying that would be the wrong move and she, that she wants to keep taxes down. Similarly, when we got onto no, those was, issues I of mean, the that, cost of living, that, Liz that Truss continually moving the issue back to taxation. Now, what amazed me last night was our state broadcaster, who we all have to pay 160 quid a year to, um, hosted a debate. And guess what? Guess what? They were in Stoke-on-Trent. There they were, deep in the red wall, where the number two concern of voters, just beneath that, of the cost of living, is the migrant crisis, what is happening in the English Channel, and the absolute loss of control of our borders. And yet, the BBC deigned not to even raise it as a question. Now, I don't think either Truss or Sunak would have had much of an answer, but the fact that it wasn't even debated was astonishing. Nor was law an order. When you look at the crime statistics, we need a serious conversation there too. I know a fair bit about head-to-head -head debates. I did two against Nick Clegg when he was Deputy Prime Minister back in 2014. And you can have a game plan going in as to how you're going to play it, but frankly, once the bell goes, whatever happens, happens. One thing I've learned about debates is it's not about going in hard. It's not about being on the front of your feet. It's actually about being on your heels and waiting a little bit. And you wait that little bit, wait for the opportunity, and in you go. Now, I, uh, I saw Nick Clegg go at me like a bull in a china shop, and it did him no good. And that's exactly what we saw with Rishi Sunak yesterday. It did not work. And I think even though Liz Truss is not a great debater, and do you know, at the start of the Sun debate tonight, she was asked to give 60 seconds, to speak for 60 seconds to camera. She had to look down four times at her notes. So it isn't, I don't think the whole thing is, actually a very edifying prospect. I'd like to ask you at home, who do you think is winning this battle? Farage at GBnews.uk. Well, joining me, somebody who 
has been around all these political figures for some years, is Charlie Rayleigh. Charlie, you were until last week a special advisor to Michael Gove, and uh, Michael Gove got unceremoniously turfed out of office as a final act of vengeance, I think, from Boris Johnson. Uh, but you've, you've been in and around the seat of power for quite a long time. And you're a Conservative and you want the Conservatives to do well. And, you know, whilst you're not going to take sides particularly on this, you want them to do well. It's not a very edifying spectacle, the whole thing, is it? I mean, last night they were interrupting each other. They were rude. I thought Sunak's face looked pretty aggressive at times. In fact, it almost reminded me of the first debate between Trump and Biden that took place in 2020. This is not doing the Conservative Party much good, is it? Oh, well, I, I, I think that's right, Nigel, and I think um, uh, you, you're absolutely right. Up until last week, I was a, a special advisor to, to Michael Gove. In that time, I have to say, I neither felt special or that I gave any kind of advice <laughs> to Michael because he was absolutely brilliant at, uh, at these kinds of debates uh, when they took place, particularly in the chamber. But I think what was telling about last night was the spin room afterwards, because you have the debates, as you say, and you go head to head, and you need to try and uh, differentiate yourself from your opponent. But in the spin room afterward, what, afterwards, what was fascinating is that all sides came together to recognise that whoever wins, whoever becomes the leader of the Conservative Party, whoever goes on to be the Prime Minister of this country, they need to bring the whole party together. And that's exactly what we've all got to do. And uh, they both have particularly different styles, but we all recognise that whoever wins the contest as a Conservative family, uh, we need to come together and win that next well, election. You may well do that, because outside of tax, there aren't many differences at all, actually, between these two candidates. They really are very similar on virtually everything else. But it's the wider perception to the public, isn't it? Because actually what's happened here is the Conservative Party has been talking about itself for the last six or eight months, not reaching out to the country, looking divided, looking weak. Um, and let's be frank, I mean, whatever Boris's personal failings, on a political platform, political stage, I mean, frankly, he looks a giant against these two. Well, I think uh, communication is key. And uh, I know by Liz's own admission, she, she said she's not the slickest of uh, uh, contenders. It's in not this a great race. CV but, to be prime minister, is it? But I think if you have the policies to deliver what the people of this country want, which is going to uh, beat Labour at the next election, it will be a fifth historic general election victory for the Conservative Party. So you need a candidate that is going to be able to deliver. And you need a candidate that can, uh, you know, we, we ask a lot of politicians these days, and you will know as a leader of a party, you will have uh, uh, people who uh, disagree with you at times, sure. they want you to go further, faster, or not at all in particular areas. But you have to recognise that if you've got the policies and the communication uh, and you're able to connect with people, uh, depending on what it is that the people actually demand of, of, of the day. So, you know, we have a cost of living crisis, we have an immigration crisis, as you rightly pointed out at the yep. top of the programme. If you've got the policies to deal with that, but you have a team of brilliant ministers who can communicate those messages, then you could be absolutely do you, fine. Do you actually think this Conservative Party is going to come up with the policies to deal with those issues. Because they look to me like they've been in office for a long time, they're tired and they're running out of ideas. Well, I, I, I don't agree with that, because I think actually the debates themselves have proved uh, that they are, as you say, we're all talking about the Conservative Party. And new ideas, new ideas are coming forward. Uh, and I think that shows, actually, after 12 years of being in government, that we still are a party that has a, uh, a breadth of ideas, that is a broad church, that will welcome... Uh, 
everybody to the party because it's only because of our success. Uh, it, it, it is only successful because we have so many views and people from different sides so of the party. So you think a fifth, a fifth wins on the cards, do you? I think everybody will recognise within the Conservative Party and the country uh, that it is only a Conservative government will, that will tackle the issues that are at stake. Uh, and it is always better to have a Conservative government than a Labour one. Well, I have to say, Charlie Rowley, I love your optimism. <laughs> I don't agree with it at all. I think they're out of ideas, but I love your optimism. And I thank you thank for you coming on. We learned overnight of the passing of a political figure, Lord David Trumbull. And, you know, there are very, very few men in history whose careers have marked a genuine watershed moment, a genuine change. And David Trumbull was one of those people. He seemed to be very much the architect of the Belfast Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement. Um, extraordinary, really, because a couple of years before that, he was at Drum Cree. There was a standoff and he was holding hands with Ian Paisley with an orange sash. And you thought for all the world that the last person that would ever make concessions to Sinn Féin IRA, as they always called them, would be David Trimble. But he did. And it came at one hell of a cost. One hell of a cost from the unionist side towards him as well as the nationalist side. I have to say, I had grave reservations about much of what was agreed at the time. But he is a truly historic figure. And it was interesting. In his last couple of years, he very much supported the Brexit position and was, but was deeply, deeply critical of the Northern Ireland protocol. Well, joining me is someone who knew David Burnside for a long, long time. Uh, David Burnside, MP, member of the Stormont Assembly, you're now running New Century here in London, doing communications advice. You knew, you knew David Trimble for a long time. You yourself, I think it's fair to say, had real problems with that Belfast Agreement when it first came into being? We all had. The whole of the unions community had. You know, we had 35 years of being blown to bits. This is 50 years since Bloody Friday. Jerry Adams and his friends headed the Belfast Brigade, let off 20 bombs. I was in Belfast that day. David Trimble was in Belfast that day. They blew the shit out of Northern Ireland. Civilians, policemen, soldiers. So w we were brought up in that atmosphere. So to come to the stage where the same people, Adams and McGuinness, you had to trust them, and that trust had to be built. Um, George Mitchell ran it beautifully, the Senator George the Mitchell. American Senator, yeah. From the yeah. US. Yeah. And David, I could see, I, I signed and supported the agreement with great reluctance. I didn't like prisoners being released, but it wasn't an amnesty. They were released on licence. If they committed crimes again, they went back in. There were 400, weren't there? 400 yeah. from both sides. 400 and, and, from both and sides. And the second released. thing that made me disillusioned after supporting the agreement was the shameful treatment from Chris Patton of the Royal Ulster Constabulary that it stood between mm. civil war and peace in Northern Ireland, both Protestant and Catholic members yeah. of the RUC. So there was a disillusionment within unionism. The Paisleyites, I, from the beginning, were against it. No, 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 even though they... In the end, in the end they, they took changed part their in every yeah. single aspect yeah. of it. Yeah. So David was very brave in those days. Geoffrey yes. um, Donaldson, Arlene, decided to move off to the DUP. I thought that was wrong. I'd stayed in the Ulster Unionist Party. But he was very, very brave in doing it. And he was not only under threat from the IRA, as any unionist politician was during the Troubles. He was under threat from the militant side of Paisleyism. 
you can look at the TV screens now, the night he lost his seat, so did yeah. I, yeah. In, in 2005. I mean, <laughs> he and Daphne were almost driven to the ground as they left the polling station. That was above and... That was too yeah. far, in my opinion, for behaviour from fellow unionists. So David went through a great deal of and 25, tension. And 25 years on, I mean, the last time I was in Belfast, it felt like a modern, British, felt like a modern British city. Over, and, overall, and, it's better. And so we, ha yeah. And he was very disillusioned about, uh, very disillusioned about Northern Ireland being the, the only part of the UK not getting Brexit. We're on a window ledge. We're half in and half out. Yes. That's the problem with the protocol. Because, you know, the basis of the Belfast Agreement was consent, consent, consent. You had the nationalist Republicans on side. You had the unionists on side. Difficult, a difficult constitutional position to uphold. But it worked and it's still there. And even though it has problems, it's dormant. And Trimble, and Trimble spoke about this and said that basically the protocol was in contravention. Oh, no, it's in breach of All the, the Act of Union. Agreement. There's illegal yeah. action still yeah. going in Belfast. Yeah. We're not an equal part of the United Kingdom on trade within no, the I nation. Know. And the leadership debate and the Conservatives, That's they're right. both saying they'll do something. Well, I have more time for, I'll declare my hand in this, and I have more time for trust in this one. At least she has mm. declared her position. Uh, Richie Sunak and Michael Gove were not signed in the Cabinet discussions, I believe, on the subject. They're frightened of having a free trade war with Europe. With Europe. Here we go again. They should have... You know, if the Tories had taken a firm line on moving out on a no-trade deal, we'd have been in a much better place. Well, we had a stronger hand. But finally, final thought, David Trimble, historic figure. Brave, historic. Um, he contributed to peace and he should be thanked. David Burnside, thank you very much indeed. In a moment, we will talk about the weather. I know they say the English always talk about the weather, but boy, it is dry out there. What's going to happen to our farmers? What's going to happen to food production? Will we all be on standpipes in a few weeks' time? Well, News UK have confirmed that Kate McCann did faint, that she's OK, but it was decided it wouldn't have been a wise thing for her to carry on. That's why the debate ended when it did. But I asked you before that, having seen the BBC debate last night and at least half of the debate today, you know, who is winning the battle for number 10. Brendan says, Liz thus far, calm and controlled. Another viewer says, it makes no difference. None of them listen to the people or live in the real world. Self-serving, the lot of them. I have to say, that view is gaining currency around the country. Stuart says, certainly it's not the British people. And Daryl says, definitely Liz Truss at present. And I think the truth of it is that she was always favourite with this electorate. 160, 180,000 Conservative members, however many it is, she was always the favourite with them because she's a sort of Mrs Thatcher tribute act, although the unkind people say she's a pound shop, Mrs Thatcher. But the point about the debates thus far is even though she's not a great public debater, even though she can't speak for 60 seconds without referring to her notes several times, she wasn't damaged by Sunak. And therefore, even a score draw would have been a win for Liz Truss, but I think she came out slightly ahead at the moment. And, as I say, those ballot papers go out next week. Now, let's have a look at a NASA space map of the United Kingdom taken in July 
2021. Let's have a look at this image and you can see it's England. And then, uh, then let's have a look at 2022. Right. So, so you see the... So that's 21. The country looks green. Let's look at 22 again. And the country is brown. And I have to say, I have to say, last summer, I couldn't get a single tomato to ripen in July. They literally rotted on the vine in the garden. I should have bought a greenhouse, I know some of you will say. Today, coming into London from Kent, I was quite shocked. I saw ferns that had gone completely brown, and to my astonishment, the trees have started to turn. I just couldn't believe it. Autumn, beginning in the middle, or three, three quarters of the way through, July. And that's because we have a serious situation. The National Drought Group did meet this morning. What does it all mean? Well, what will it mean for crops? What will it mean for farming? It seems that a hosepipe ban in some way may not be too far away. Well, joining me is Mark Tufnell, president of the Country Landowners Association. And you yourself are an arable farmer. Um, quite difficult to grow things without water, isn't it? It's very difficult to grow things without water. From a cereal point of view, the crops are already senescing off. They've grown as much as they can. And so the yield will be down and I suspect the quality will be. We just simply haven't had enough rain. And if you look at the statistics, we haven't had enough since it goes back to 1975, 1976. So the actual rivers and the water table is way down. But it, the big impact it's going to have at the moment is for those remaining crops that need that water. So that's vegetables, yeah. salad crops uh, and potatoes. And we need to irrigate those crops very wisely, do it at night so we don't get the evaporation, because we need to fill the shelves with good, high-class British product. Now, in 76, of course, we had huge restrictions on usage of water. And it nearly happened again, didn't it, in 2018? We were very, very close to a restriction. So a, f a full hosepipe ban could lead to a very limited use of irrigation for agriculture. It could do if the Environment Agency brought in what's called Section 57. Mm -hmm. Now, we're arguing that that shouldn't happen because we need that water for our crops to provide the food that we all need. And also the other area that we mustn't forget, because there's no fodder in the fields for the animals, the livestock, a lot of them are being brought in. They're being fed crops and hay and silage that they that, would normally that's the winter be winter crop, is that? that, that exactly. Yes. So they're going to be they're going, they're being fed that early so they've had a first cut silage. We're waiting in some places, particularly in Pembrokeshire, for a second cut and it hasn't rained. Um, so they'll have to wait. And those animals, if they haven't got anything to eat, they'll be eating the supplies that they would be eating in the winter months. Are we close to a farming crisis? Not yet. Not yet. But we need to preserve the water we have. Now, there is a longer term plan and it's something that governments have been looking at. And at long last, there is a farming transformation programme, which is providing funding towards capturing and keeping that water within mm -hmm. small reservoirs. But it takes time. And as you can imagine, there are licensing arrangements and there are planning applications that have to be made. It all course. takes a lot of time. Yeah, no, it does. And we need the water now. 
long-range weather forecast? Well, the long-range forecast at the moment, according to the Met Office, presented this morning, is that there's not going to be very much rain until the 3rd of August, and at least going forward, and they're forecasting another couple of heat waves. So we're going to need to have yeah. wet ground to plant <clears throat> those crops in the autumn to get a good take for all the winter crops, the winter wheat, the winter barley that we all need to sustain not only the UK population, but all the animals yeah. that survive on it. Mark Tufnell, thank you for coming in. We'll be hearing a lot more about this story, I suspect, over thank the you. next few weeks. Now, a couple of what the Farage moments. Yes, isn't it wonderful? The World Health Organization, the Brits have just appointed a new high post position. Yes, to a communist British scientist. You couldn't make this up, could you? Professor Susan Mitchie, been a member of the British Communist Party for 50 years. She was a great apologist for the Soviet Union. She was a member of SAGE, don't ask me why. And she's gone to the WHO to work on the Behavioural Advisory Group. That means people who want to control our every move in life. She would advise how to boost compliance with health policies such as vaccine rollouts. She's an advocate of wearing face masks indoors as well as outdoors, and she believes that social distancing and test and trace should be here to stay permanently. Well, isn't that absolutely wonderful? I'm sure Susan Mitchie and the World Health Organization just about deserve each other. Another what the Farage moment, the French Parliament yesterday voted to abolish the 80-year-old French TV licence. Yes, they pay €140 Euros a year, so very similar in many ways, to us and the French Parliament have voted to abolish it. I know there is a debate in this country about defunding the BBC. Maybe we better take a leaf out of the French book. And finally, in this section, a very serious story. Nord Stream 1 is that pipeline that brings in the gas without which Germany cannot heat its homes and cannot run its factories. And it's been under pressure. It was closed recently for maintenance. It's currently pumping out 40% of its total capacity. But it's been announced by Gazprom that it's decreasing capacity to just 20%. And now, in Germany, and you know, regular viewers and listeners of this programme, I've been saying for months that energy rationing is coming to the continent and may come to us. Now... The European Union are telling all their member states they must reduce usage by 15%. German voices today now saying they must reduce by 20%. The evidence thus far is that consumers have reduced usage by 5 to 7%. And I don't know what's going to happen from here, but it could be that Germany is heading for an absolutely catastrophic winter by making themselves too reliant on Russia closing their nuclear plants and, of course, going back a little bit, closing many of their coal-fired power stations. They didn't think it through. They didn't get it right. Now, in a moment on Talking Pines, I'll be joined by a man who was awarded the MBE for his work to charity, his work with the homeless, his effort to get people off the streets and back to work and getting you know, their self-respect and pride back in their lives. But he dared... Oh, he dared in 2020 to criticise BLM and he was sacked from his job and found himself at the centre of a national storm. Nick Buckley, MBE, joins me on Talking Pints in just a minute.
It is time for Talking Pints. I'm joined by Nick Buckley, MBE Mancunian, who's come to visit us today. Nick, welcome to Talking Pints. Thank you. Little secret, Nick was supposed to be here on Talking Pints today. <coughs> Boris Johnson resigned that he came all the way down from Manchester and we sent him back again. But I think, Nick, <laughs> you did understand the reasons why. Absolutely. Now, Nick, it, it, it's a fascinating tale. Uh, you know, you, you've you worked for the local council up in Manchester. Uh, and in the end, you went out on your own, set up your own charity mm. called the Mancunian Way, yep. which was a quite inspired title, yep. actually. But you spent sort of 20 odd years working with homeless people, working with those who were, mm. were or are vulnerable. Yep. Um, what are the big lessons you learned in those 20 years? The lesson really was about personal responsibility. Most of that time was working with young people trying to stop and get involved in crime. And then I later got into homelessness as well. And it was the same lesson. It was personal responsibility. People, and I was guilty of this through my teens and 20s, of always waiting for someone to improve my life for me. And shock, horror, no one's ever going to improve your life for you. You have to do it yourself. Um, so, you know, the people who end up on the street, rough sleeping, They've, you know, they're broken people anyway, and they've got a lifetime of the state, social services, the courts making decisions for them. And eventually it turns into something called learnt helplessness, where you don't know how to solve your own little problems. You're just helpless, always waiting for someone to fix them for you. And I imagine a lot of people who are sleeping on the streets as a result of everything have psychological problems. Yes. There are many with alcohol and substance addiction. Yep problems. How, how, how the hell do you turn those lives around? Can they be turned around in significant numbers? Every life can be turned around. I'm never having anyone telling me that we have lost causes because we don't have lost causes. You really believe that? No, I, I honestly believe that. Some people will take a hell of a lot of work and in the charity I used to be part of and run, we had a policy called no more last chances, which means we never run out of chances with you. We'll spend six months helping you, getting you off the streets, getting you into a job, getting you into drug treatment. And after eight months, you fall back on the streets. Well, do you know what? We'll start again from square one. Really? Because it may take you two or three times before it sticks. So it's all about making... Because these are our fellow citizens. And I'm, I've never been in a position where I want to write off our fellow citizens. But it's difficult work. But you can't help those, Nick, surely, that don't want to be helped. They all want to be helped. What happens is you walk up to someone on the street who sat there begging, living on the streets, and you say, do you want some help? And they go, no, thank you, I'm fine. Well, we know that's not true. You can tell by their eyes. Their eyes are telling you, I'm dying. I'm in pain. Ma I'm sorry I was born. That's what their eyes are telling you. And you need to build up a relationship with that person over weeks and months, and you start unpicking why you're here. You know, what is, it that, what is it that happened in your life that led to this? What can we do to help? And these people need professional help. They don't need people... You know, I don't fix people's lives on the streets. All I do is get them the professional help they You're need. You're the broker, I'm the broker, yeah, because yes. they need yes. professional help. You know, it's the people who, who go around buying people um, meal deals. Honestly, if a sandwich could get someone off the streets, we wouldn't have a problem in this country. Mm. They need professional help, not a sandwich, and not, not 17 pence in change. That wouldn't fix anyone's life. So when we're walking down, oh, it could be Victoria Street or somewhere in London or anywhere in Manchester equally, yep. and when there are people there asking for money on the street, should we give them money? Or how do we know we're not, how do we know we're not being exploited by criminal gangs? Or, yep. you know, what should we do? 
So 15 years of working with the homeless, this is what I say. You never give anyone money on the streets. Okay. Because from my evaluation of Manchester City Centre a couple of years ago, 65% of the people begging on the streets of Manchester City Centre were not even homeless. That's two thirds. Really? Even the one third who were living on the streets, giving their money doesn't help them at all. It goes straight into the local drug dealer's pocket for some more drugs. Those drugs slightly damage that individual a little bit more. Wow. So, so now it's harder to get off the streets. Is a bit more damage. So what does he need? He now needs a little bit more drugs because he's slightly more damaged. We're paying so this people. is a real tough love approach you're advocating Ops, here. Everything we do is tough love. Very, very. And then people say, well, I don't give money. I give sandwiches. And, and surely that can't hurt anybody. But the answer is, yes, it does. And let me explain why. Because in all our major cities, we have homeless centres where people can go and get food and have a shower and things like that. It's only when they're in those centres, having a hot meal, sat at a table like a human being, not sat on a dirty pavement eating scraps. They feel human sat at a table using a knife and fork. That's when the social workers and support workers can start talking to them and start unpicking some of their problems. So when you give someone a meal deal sat on the street, all you've done is stop them getting help that day. Because now wow. they don't need to go to the centre. This is an incredibly powerful message. There'll be a lot of people watching this thinking, crikey, you know, I have given money, I have done things, and you're telling them, with all your experience, that doesn't help. It doesn't help, but I want them to help. So what, I'm not saying don't help these people. No. They need help. It's the right kind and of And you should want to help. The way you help them is you do some research, you find out some local charities in your area who are doing face-to-face -face work. Not the big ones, mm. the small charities doing face-to-face -face work. And you set up a direct debit to give them £4 a, a month. That means something. That does something for those people. Um, that's how you help. Did you find with the Mancunian way that fundraising was a big challenge? It's, it got easier and easier before COVID, because we got better and better at it. Yes. And then since COVID, it's all collapsed. Um, and then I got into trouble myself. We're going to come to that, so, don't worry. <laughs> so, so, so now the funding, the funding through donations is very minimal now. Can you think back through the years of you know, big success stories, people whose lives you, you turned completely around, who went to work and became successful? Oh, absolutely. I've got... So, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a quick one or two. So we got one homeless gentleman, a job on the building site as a labourer. Uh, we, we phoned up his employer the first couple of days. How's he doing? He's doing great. The second week we phoned up, how's he doing? He's been late every morning this week. So we went down to see him at lunchtime. What's going on? You know, this is a great opportunity, mm. but I'm really, really sorry. I'm going to try harder. I'll wake up early in the morning. We went, what do you mean? He went... I've actually got no money till I get paid in three weeks' time. The job centre stopped all my money. I'm walking seven miles to get to, to get to work in the morning. I've got no money for food, and I'm walking seven miles home every evening. And I'm sorry I was 15 minutes late. I, I went, don't apologise. Here's a month's ticket for you, you know, for the buses. Yeah. We'll get you some food from a food parcel. So here's a man who was going to get sacked, who would have failed again in life, not because he was lazy, not because of a drug addiction, because he had no money to get a bus ticket, a £1.50 bus ticket, and we were going to ruin his life again. These are little things, the little problems that we need to solve to make sure people are successful instead of saying just a waste of well, space. Well, it's a very compelling story. And for your work, you were awarded the MBE, which yes. is a great honour, and congratulations on that. And it was all looking pretty good, really, wasn't it? it Everything was. was going well in life, Nick, and then... Then the, the madness which struck, and of course I was a victim of the madness mm. too, 
And I'm talking about within 24 hours of the murder, as a court decided, you know, of, of, of a man in the Midwest, George Floyd. Within 24 hours, there were organised protests in London. I mean, yeah. this, was, this wasn't a coincidence. This was planned. Yeah. But, but BLM mania hit the corporate world, the media world. You couldn't say a word against it. All I did was try to explain that BLM was an avowedly Marxist, dangerous mm. left-wing organisation that wanted to de defund the very police who were taking the knee to them. But you went a bit further in a way, didn't you? I was naive. People say I was brave. I wasn't brave. I was naive. Um, we had the mostly peaceful riots in London. Um, and I thought, who are these Black Lives Matter organisations? I'd heard of them before, but I didn't really know much about it. So I Googled it, found their website. So not a conspiracy theory website, their, their website. website yeah. Read their website and went, I don't like the sound of any of this. Especially the bit about the breaking down the Western nuclear family. And I thought... That's the biggest problem we've got in our society is no fathers yeah, in yeah, the home yeah. and they want to do more of this. So I wrote a seven of the word blog as an individual and put it on my personal blog. Didn't talk about the charity at all because it's nothing to do with the charity. Put it out there. Some people went crazy. So I went from MBE to a Nazi in six months. So somebody said... <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. But, yeah, yeah, no, but, no. But it was just... It was mania, wasn't it? It was. I had one lady contact me going, I take on board all your charity work and... Um, but you're still a Nazi. You're just a compassionate Nazi. And that was the nicest insult I ever had. Um, so then someone set a petition up to have me fired for my own charity. The board were basically cowards. And they went, if we don't give them Nick's head, they may come for us. So the easiest thing is let's give them Nick's head. Yeah. And they sacked me. And that must have been devastating. It, my life fell apart. It, but you also, as a result of that, were part of a national media Storm. I was. The first week I was a beaten man. I was a wreck. Absolutely beaten man. Um, I, you know, it was like, what have I done to ruin my life? Um, and then I just woke up one morning and I gave myself a talk. The same talk. I've given 10,000 young men the same talk. What are you feeling sorry for? Get up. Push yourself down. Your best step forward. Don't, and that's what I did. And I thought, right, spoke to this male on Sunday, spoke to the free speech union. And I thought, I'm not having this. I may not win, but I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll be a very good second in this race. So um, we then launched a campaign. I launched a campaign to put more pressure on the board to say, this isn't on, you know, this isn't right. Mm. Um, and within five weeks, we forced the whole board to resign in disgrace. And I got my job back. I'm delighted to hear that mm. because it was a lot of people lost their jobs during that period of yes. time. Um, and, and, and now, of course, the same journalists who were screaming that BLM was this great virtuous thing, they've now read the website. How about that? Yes. <laughs> they've now caught up with where we were. So you're back to work, but here we are, cost of living crisis, a heck of a lot of people on low wages just not going to be able to pay the bills, yep. it's going to be very, very hard, very, very hard. Homelessness is going to increase. Yep. We're facing a bit of a problem, aren't we? We are. Um, I've taken a step back from the charity now because funders were saying we're not going to fund the charity if Nick Buckley's involved. So I've had to take a step back. So even though I won, I still lost. Yeah. Um, it's going to get hard. I mean, even, even everyday people now are struggling, you know, the cost of living crisis, which is really a cost of lockdown crisis, basically. Um, it's going to get hard. I don't know what the solution is. 
Um, That'd be tough. It's going to take a proper leader, and that's what we're missing in the country. And you've stood independently, you've stood for reform. Is, yeah. is, is politics perhaps a way, a way that Nick Buckley might go? It's, it is. Um, not, all my eggs, not all my eggs are in that basket at the moment, um, but I feel the only way we're going to change the country mm. is if we get some more voices in the places where those decisions are made. No. Because I'm tired of the same career politicians making the same choices which only benefit them. I don't mean benefit them financially, I mean benefit them in their career. It's just career politicians, and we don't seem to have anybody anymore now with a vision for the country. The only person recently with a vision for the country was Jeremy Corbyn, and I never would have voted for the man, but at least he had a different vision and said, this is where I want to take you as a nation, and we all said, no, thank you. Mm. But at least, at least he was honest. Very interesting point. And a final thought. You've got a book coming out this Saturday. Tell us all about I it. I have. So my first book a year ago was about what happened to me. It was all about we need some courage in this country, and that's what the book was about. But the book that comes out on Saturday is called The Making of a Beggar, and that's the problem we have. It's everybody now is becoming a beggar of the state. We always want someone to give us something for nothing. No one's prepared to work hard, not hardly, no one's work, work hard. It's all about what can I get? Mm. What's in this for me? Instead of saying, what can I do to improve my family? What can I do to improve my community? If my street outside is dirty, I'll, I'll get a brush and clean it myself. I'm tired of people waiting for someone else to fix their problems and it's getting us nowhere and that's what we need to do if we're going to build a community back up. Personal responsibility, Nigel. Nick Buckley, I love your positivity and your bulldog spirit. Terrific. Thank you for joining me on Thank Talking Pie. It's a great pleasure to have you. A little bit of time left on tonight's show. Let's go to Barrage the Farage. Robbo asks, do you think it's feasible for Truss and Sunak to work together after the recent clashes? As our Talking Pints guest just said, they're all career politicians, and apart from a few differences on tax, they agree on virtually everything else. They agree on net zero. They'll do nothing to stop the cross-channel migrant crisis. Of course, they'll all work together. Yasmin asks me, who do you think is to blame for the delays at Dover? French intransigence. They have 14 booths, OK, on this side of the channel to check passports. And on Saturday morning, there were only six people at those 14 stations. It's not Brexit. Operation Stack came into being in 1988. I live in Kent. I know that motorway is off on a complete nightmare. Finally, Gareth asks, Nigel, when will you be going on to Truth Social? Well, tell you what I have done here. I've given Truth Social, Getter and all those platforms a pretty fair airing. I've interviewed their chief executives. I make my own decisions which platforms I join. I'm on quite a few already. Now, I am done for the evening after the drama of that debate earlier. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Thank you.